Welcome to Transformation Church RVA. This sermon is a part of our series called Numbers, Preparing for Promise. The book of Numbers gives us insight and warnings for how a covenant people of God should engage with seasons in the wilderness. We will see God's sovereign hand at work over the course of this series as he shaped and molded Israel in preparation for the promised land that awaited them. Although Israel endured many trials and tribulations, oftentimes due to their own sin, the Lord's plan of salvation is at work in numbers as he centers his people on himself. We're going to read from the scriptures this morning, Numbers chapter 21. If you're using the, uh, the Pew Bible that's in front of you, you'll find this reading on page 129. And of course, if you uh, need a Bible at home, you don't have a Bible, take that with you. That's our gift to you. And as you open to that, uh, that chapter, you'll notice if you're using one of these ingenious devices with pages and a cover, that you immediately get, get notified that we're way, way back at the beginning of the Bible story. We are a lot closer to the creation of the world than we are uh, to the coming of Christ at this point. But this ancient history was recorded for your benefit, church, here in the 21st century. So please follow along as we read from Numbers chapter 21, first nine verses. The Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that the Israelites were approaching on the road to Atharim. So he attacked the Israelites and took some of them as prisoners. Then the people of Israel made this vow to the Lord. If you will help us conquer these people, we will completely destroy all their towns. The Lord heard their request and gave them victory over the Canaanites. The Israelites completely destroyed them and their towns, and the place has been called Hormah ever since. Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient along the way, and they began to murmur against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this wretched manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among them, and many of them were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to the top of a pole. Those who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to the top of a pole. Whenever those who were bitten looked at the bronze snake, they recovered. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Here's what I think of Pastor Appreciation Day. They think, oh, we're talking about snakes. Let's give it to the youth guy. <laughs> but my name's Corey. Um, I'm the director of Students in Production. If you haven't gotten to meet me, um, I'd love to meet you. It's great to see all the new faces here after coming home Sunday last week. And just another quick reminder, don't forget about pizza with the pastor directly after the service. Um, we'd love to. It's a great time to get to talk to Carl, to get to learn about the church, about what we're about, what we like to do, and just ask any questions 
that you might have. So just a quick recap. It's been, it's been a week. We kind of took a little bit of a break last week, but we've been walking through the book of Numbers. And in the book of Numbers so far, we've seen that one, God has been at the center of the camp as they've moved through um, the wilderness and that he was the, everything was orchestrated around him, around the tabernacle, and that God has been leading the people through the wilderness. And then, right as they got to the promised land, right as they got to the place that God had promised, they sent out spies, the spies came back, they gave a report that wasn't what they were thinking, and the people lost faith. They didn't listen to God, and so they were banished into the wilderness to wander for 40 years. And then we saw Moses take an instruction from God, and he was disobedient. He struck a rock instead of speaking to it. He took the place of God rather than letting God be God, and because of that, the consequences of Moses' actions in that moment where he would no longer get to enter into the promised land. So this is where we find ourselves. We're on the precipice of the promised land. And if we, if we look back a little bit, we see there's a couple things that happen that are kind of interesting. The people come to the land of Edom, and they have a discourse with the Edomites. They say, no, we're not going to let you pass through our land. There's a lot of history in that. Um, that's really interesting, but what we should take away is that now they have to go around. Um, they have to travel around Edom to get to the promised land. And also, we see that Aaron has just died. So Aaron, who was the lead Levite, he was the high priest, has just passed away because his consequence for disobedience was also he would not get to enter the promised land. So that's where we're at. And we've seen several characteristics throughout all of these stories that have remained consistent. One of those characteristics is grumbling. The people like to grumble. The second one is they also, they keep forgetting what God has done for them. They keep forgetting. So those are the two things that have been consistent, and that's where we are. And what we're going to see as we walk through this story is that we must never forget that God has sufficiently provided for his people and that he continues to do so. So our story starts in, verse, in chapter 21, verse 1. It starts with the king of Arad taking some of the Israelites captive. So we know they've just gotten to this point where they're about to go into the promised land. And this king, he comes, he attacks Israel, and he takes some of them captive. And then what happens is Israel, they cut a deal with the Lord. They make a covenant. They say, God, if you promise to give us this victory, we will wipe out the entire people of the kingdom of Arad. We'll take them all out. So God says yes, and we see that they have a victory. They win. They wipe out the whole people, and God grants them that victory. You know, I want to I take a look at this because I think in our context, this idea of total destruction of an entire people, it seems really abrasive. We kinda, we kinda, it doesn't necessarily sit right with our first inclinations. But I think there's several things that we need to realize. Is one, 
these people were pagans. They were sinners. They were living lives that were completely contrary to what God considered holiness. What we haven't talked about all the way back in Leviticus is God has given the Israelites these purity laws, these expectations of godly living that they are supposed to obey. And that if they don't, they have to go through all these sacrifices to cleanse themselves. Well, these people, they haven't been doing that. And then, but if we were to go a little forward in the story in Deuteronomy 7... God also gives a reason, one reason that the Israelites are to to wipe everyone out is to guard against apostasy, to guard against false teachings creeping into them, them worshiping false gods, them doing things that they are not supposed to do. And a little little bit of spoiler alert, if if you read in Joshua and Judges and on into Kings, you'll see that the Israelites did not obey this. And because they didn't obey this, they started to worship false gods. They started to disobey God, and eventually that led to their exile in Babylon. And then another interesting note that we see, which is really cool, is, you know, when they sent the spies out into the land, they were camped at a spot, waited for 40 days for those spies to come back. And where we find ourselves now is the Israelites are in that same location. That is where this battle takes place. They're back to where they started. After 40 years of wandering in the desert, they're finally back to where they started and God has granted them a victory. The Lord has remained faithful to his people, to the promise that he made them. And what we also need to realize is that if we could look at Genesis chapter 28, verse 20, that it's Jacob makes a covenant with God. Right after he has his dream about the staircase going to heaven, he makes a covenant with God. And that covenant that he makes in verse 28 in Genesis, or in chapter 28 in Genesis, it's the exact same language that the people of Israel use when they make their covenant with God. So what we see is that the Lord is being faithful to his people, not because of what they've done, Because let's be honest, they've been pretty grumbly. They've turned away. They've complained. God is being faithful to his people because of the promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob years ago. So I'm not sure how many of you in here are married or have hopes to get married. Maybe not. But part of marriage is you make a covenant. You know, hopefully you like them. (laughs) But like isn't always enough. You make a covenant. When you get married, you say your wedding vows. We say for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. We make a promise to our spouse that no matter what happens, no matter how we feel or how they feel, that we're going to remain faithful to them. So I don't have any visible evidence of this, but I've been told by my wife that while we've had a newborn in the house, say three, four o'clock in the morning, no baby's crying, she's like reaching over, hitting me, trying to wake me up, that my evil twin comes out. Now, I don't remember a thing, like completely oblivious. So she'll tell me what happened in the morning, I'm like... You sure that was me? Um, or the, the 7 a.m. like dirty diaper changes. There's not a lot inside of me that wants to change a dirty diaper at 7 o'clock in the morning. 
but I do it because you, we made a promise to each other that no matter what, that we would be faithful. And, you know, I think the thing about us and God is we break our promises all the time. We let other things stand in between us and our relationship with God, our family, our friends, our job, our hobbies, and we break those promises that we've made. But thank you, Jesus, that God's provision isn't based on our promises, but on his. You know, and the Israelites, they've, at this point in time, they've complained enough to write a book, right? Like you could fill up an entire book with the complaints of the Israelites. Oh, take us back to Egypt. We hate this food that you're magically making appear from heaven. But God still provided for them because he was faithful to the promise that he made to Jacob. He was faithful to the promise that he made to Abraham. And you know, I want to be sure that we realize that God's provision doesn't, does not mean that we're going to get the job that we want, the house that we want, the money that we need. God's provision is a savior who took our place on the cross. And I'm not saying that God doesn't want to give his children good gifts. He does. But the moment that we say his gifts are a necessary part of his provision, we've trampled the ultimate gift that he gave. We've said that our needs and our desires are greater than Jesus. God's provision is based on his promise. So I'll give you three guesses to guess as to what happens next, but the first two don't count. Let's take a look at verse five. Verse five, and they began to murmur against God and Moses. They complain. They complain, they complain, they complain. They fall into the exact same things that happened before. What their forefathers did, they grumble and complain against who God is and what he's done. They say, take us back to Egypt. We like slavery better. They speak out against God. So at my time, when I was at Anderson before we came back to Virginia, I was, I was the venue technical director there, so basically I ran all the productions. We had this uh, theater, all that kind of stuff, right? And my second full week that I was there, so it was Friday at 4.15. I was about to go home. I had one more thing to do. We had to move a piano off stage. It was a big grand piano, a Bosendorfer. Um, has like two extra keys on the low end. People that know pianos really geek out about it. I don't know. Um, we had to move a, a Bosendorfer off the stage, so I texted a couple of my student workers that work for me, and they were on the way to come help me move the piano. Well, on the stage in Henderson Auditorium, there's a closet. We push it into the closet, lock the door, you know. And to get there, there's what you call, I don't know if anybody's familiar with like a theatrical stage, but like the bigger ones, they've got these things called legs. And legs are not actual legs but they're big black curtains that hang on the side of the stage that you can like turn and pull in and out. And they basically hide everything that's going on um, on the stage. 
So if anything side stage that you don't want to hear during the show, it hides it from the audience. Well, to move the piano, we have to like tie up one of the legs so we can push the piano underneath of it so the piano doesn't catch, catch the curtain and rip the curtain or damage the piano because the pianos, they would say, were worth more than we were, you know. They love their pianos. Well, while I was waiting for them to come, I went to tie up one of the legs. And as I went to gather the leg, the next thing I knew, I was on the floor, blood was everywhere. One of the curtains, the entire metal bar with the curtain had fallen and hit me in the back of the head. I mean, this is like a 12 foot tall curtain that's like really, really, really thick and there's two metal bars. I mean, it's probably like 200 plus pounds of weight that's falling. So by God's grace, I walked away with a concussion and 12 staples in the back of my head. But come to find out, year and a half later, year and a half later, I'm talking to Emily. She was like, oh, yeah, you remember when this happened? I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, oh, yeah, this and this and this happened. It's like, uh-uh, come again? I had completely forgotten the two weeks after that fell. It's gone, don't remember. So she would tell me stories like, oh yeah, I came, like I was supposed to basically lay on the couch after I got diagnosed with a concussion, lay on the couch, look at the ceiling and not do anything. It didn't go over very well. Um, so Emily would walk in the room and I'd just be chilling watching TV. She'd walk in the room, she'd have to turn it off. She'd walk in the room again, I was trying to like hang a, a picture frame or something. I don't know, she tells the story way better than I can. But I'd forgotten two weeks. In Israel, it's the same way. It's like they took a pole to the back of the head. They keep forgetting what God has done for them. They keep forgetting who he is and what he has done. And you know, in the sense of a narrative, this time where they had the battle and where they started complaining, it happens directly after. It's like fresh in their minds. They had just fought. The Lord had just given them a victory. He had, they just made the covenant. And here they are, a second later, saying, take us back to Egypt. We're done with this. Grumbling and complaining, they took a pole to the back of the head. And now this is where the story starts getting really interesting. Anybody like snakes, afraid of snakes, don't like snakes? Well, the Lord sends snakes fiery snakes. Now, they're not actually on fire. It'd be kind of cool if they were, but venomous snakes were sent among the people for their consequences and the actions that they took. They got snakes. The consequences of their sin was death. Sports, anybody like sports, play sports, do sports, grew up playing sports. You know, I love sports. Fond, fond memories. Grew up playing baseball and basketball. But through that, there's consequences to those sports. Like, yes, I have so much joy when I look back, but also I've got floating pieces of bone in my ankles. I had to have a major surgery on my shoulder. Like, there's consequences to things that we do and actions that we take. The consequences of their actions was death at the hands of snakes. Let's be honest. Can we be honest for a minute? I don't think we have a clue how much God hates sin. 
I think most of the time we go about our lives on a daily basis. We, we sin, and sin is anything we do or say that is, goes against the will of God. We sin and we go, huh, whoops, didn't mean to do that. It'll be okay, I just won't do it next time. And we completely miss the reality. We completely miss and forget what God has done for us. I mean, we don't have to look back far in the Old Testament to see what God thinks of sin. He destroyed entire cities because they wouldn't repent. He flooded the entire world because of sin. God cannot tolerate sin. But it's in the midst of that when we think to the cross and we think that he made a way. He sent his son to die an agonizing death on the cross to set an example for us and in his goodness and in his justness he still chose to make a way. And we just say, oops. I'll try harder next time. Think about sending your own child to the cross. And then see how you feel the next time someone who doesn't deserve it just dismisses it and says, eh, I'll try better next time. We have got to stop justifying and dismissing our sinful behavior because every time we do, we spit what Christ has done for us. We are effectively saying that his sacrifice wasn't important enough to us to care about. Sin has dire consequences. Israel's consequences was snakes. Our consequences, broken homes. Children who face abuse at the hands of people they trust. Girls and boys who are trafficked every day for their bodies. Churches with empty pews. Lost people are going to act lost. They don't know any better. But when they see Christians act like lost people and then, and then hold judgment over them because of the same behavior... No wonder nobody wants to come to church. Sin has dire consequences. So, snakes everywhere. It sounds pretty terrible. I wouldn't like it. I mean, I can just imagine, like, you, you walk into your room, you lay down in the bed, you pull the covers up nice and cozy, and you're laying wiggling your toes, and all of a sudden you, like, feel something slither at your feet. <sighs> Or you sit down at the dinner table, you're like reaching for a piece of bread and there's like a snake wrapped around the loaf of bread. I don't think so. It reminds me of, um, I know, scary story, right? Reminds me of in snakes. It reminds me of, I grew up on a farm. I mean, we had chickens, we had to go get the eggs. You know, we get a little bucket, we walk out to the chicken house and start grabbing eggs, sticking them in the bucket, you know, maybe making fun of a chicken here and there. And then you reach into a basket, uh, uh, a nest, and you're kind of feeling around for the eggs, and it feels kind of funny. And then you take your hand out, and you look in, and there's just a snake in the nest because he's been eating the eggs. Ooh, snakes everywhere. 
So it didn't take long for the Israelite people to realize that they messed up. (laughs) They had done something wrong. They had turned their backs on God again. They had grumbled. And you know, they had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years being led around by a pillar of fire by, by night and a pillar of cloud by day. They had no food or no water, and yet the Lord always provided. And they had just come off a battle, and still they were grumbling. Does it sound familiar? It should. And I'm not talking about the Israelite people. I'm talking about the person in the mirror every single day. We come to church every Sunday. We sing our worship songs. We amen to the pastor. We talk about we're going to do this for the community. We're going to do this in our church. We get excited and then we leave and we take a pole to the back of the head and we forget everything that we know about who Jesus is. We're so quick to expect compassion from other people for things that we do wrong. And yet, when someone we disagree with does something wrong, what do we do? Throw them under the bus and drive right over. We shrug off our own moral failures and of those the people that we like and say, oh, they're not a big deal. They're just little bumps in the road, one-time mishaps. But heaven forbid somebody with a differing opinion has a moral failure because we're going to throw them to the wolves. A pole to the back of the head. We forget. We forget where we came from. We forget that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were running the opposite direction from God, he pursued after us. But our way's better. We know right. We completely miss our snakes. The bridges with family and friends that are burned because we obviously can't be the ones who messed up the lost sinners who will never walk over the threshold of a church because the people inside act worse than the people outside, but the people inside won't admit it. They're growing fissures in our marriage relationships because our security, secret guilty pleasures are more important than our own holiness. And just so I make this abundantly clear, the snakes that I'm talking about, that's our own personal sin. So Moses prays, and the Lord gives him instruction. The Lord tells him, put a snake on a pole. Erect it up so everybody can see it. And whoever looks at that snake, they will be saved. And a couple things that we've got to take away from this is the Lord does not promise no suffering. The people still get bit by snakes. They still struggle and have hardship with the venom. But what the Lord does promise is he does promise salvation that they will not die. But it also required an action. It required them to look at the pole, look at the snake. It required repentance, that as they looked, they remembered what they had done. They remembered that they were the ones that put themselves in this situation because they turned away. They grumbled against the Lord. God didn't take away the consequences 
but he did provide salvation. And I want to draw a couple parallels here. As Christians who look back through the lens of the New Testament, one thing should come to our mind when we're reading the story. And Jesus himself points it out to us in John 3, 14 and 15. He says, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. We know the cross. We have the cross. We have Jesus. We have an example of God living, and yet we still live every single day like we've been hit in the back of the head with a pole. We continually forget what he's done for us, where he's brought us from, in the ways that we interact with other people, in the ways that we interact with our families, in the ways that we carry our lives. We haven't been given a license to sin. We've been given a license to be free from it. And this is not a promise of easy living. Israel still felt the effects of the toxin. I looked up kind of what snake venom does to you. There's different types, but this is what um, BBC News, they had an article on snakes. This is what they said. And this is hemiotoxic venom. It goes into the bloodstream, and it can trigger lots of tiny blood clots. And then when the venom punches holes in the blood vessels, causing them to leak, there's nothing left to stem the flow, and the patient bleeds to death. Our sin is the same way. It infects all of us, every aspect of our lives. If we let it go unchecked, it affects the people around us, our families, our friends. It leaves a path of destruction in its wake. Repentance is key. And what we saw is it's just, it's an active nature of repentance. It's not just this saying like, oh man, I'm sorry. I'll try not to do it again. It's, it's putting the sin to death. It's confessing it before the Lord saying, I have sinned, get it out of my life. And actively taking steps and measures to make sure it doesn't happen again. Christ brought us salvation. We have got to stop justifying our own sin because it's causing damage that we can't even see. We are not going to change the world by pointing out all of its flaws. We are going to change the world by confessing ours and asking them to join us. I'm going to read that one more time. We're not going to change the world by pointing out all of its flaws. We're going to change the world by confessing ours and asking them to join us. Salvation requires true repentance. You know, Christ, he doesn't want our whitewashed selves. He accused the Pharisees of being whitewashed tombs, of living a certain way on the outside and looking a certain way on the outside 
outside, but on the inside, they could care less. They were prideful, they were deceited, they didn't love their neighbors. They were holding other people to expectations that they didn't even hold themselves to. Instead, Christ wants us. He wants us broken, he wants us bruised, he wants us willing to admit that we have problems. You know, there's a song that we sing quite often that I think is, sums this up about perfectly. Verse three says this, bring all your failures, bring your addictions, come lay them down at the foot of the cross. Jesus is waiting there with open arms. Can you see his open arms? Now, I think we got to get out of our minds this stigma that Christ expects us to come to him after we've worked out all of our issues. We cannot work out our issues without Christ. He's the only one that can show us the way to the Father. Christ didn't die so that we could go around pretending that everything is okay. Let's not be the Israelite people. Let's not keep taking a pole to the back of the head and forgetting where we've come from. So let's bring our failures to the cross. Let's bring our struggles to the cross. Because it's only Christ who can satisfy us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for reminding us daily who you are and what you've done for us. God, I pray that as we sing about your love for us, God, that we would take a step towards you we would take a step in repentance and understand that you're not holding it against us. God, but you're just seeking a relationship with us. Christ, it's only through you that we can have life. Thanks for streaming this audio from Transformation Church RVA located in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, check out our website at www.transformationrva.com.